getting some special programming on. Stay tuned after this for a half hour from Wings. That's the Women's International News Gathering Service right here on your Monday night. The Kitchen Sisters present The Climate Underground. All right, we're going to roll. Ready? I always start with this image of Earthrise made on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1968, on the first mission to go all the way out to the moon. One of the astronauts saw out of the corner of his eye this amazing image. They didn't expect it. Oh, my God, look at that picture over there. Earth coming up. Wow. Sounds like a family on vacation in a station wagon. Give me a roll of color quick. Oh, man. That's crazy. Where is it? Quick. quick, where's my camera? Get me some color film. Rick Serval up here. Wait a minute. Let me just get the right setting here. Calm down, Bubba. Oh, I got it. Oh, that's a beautiful shot. This one's called the Blue Marble, and it was from Apollo 17. The last image taken by a human being from far enough out in space to see the planet hold the most published photograph in all of history. I do so many slideshows and presentations, I just never get nervous anymore, but I'm nervous before this one. The very first climate underground conference here on Gore Farm. Al Gore is back, and he's got a new slideshow. Better take heed. Last October, the former vice president, Nobel Prize winner, and Academy Award winner for An Inconvenient Truth, and activist, restaurateur, founder of the Edible Schoolyard, Alice Waters, gathered farmers, ranchers, scientists, chefs, researchers, and policymakers on Al's family farm in Carthage, Tennessee, for a riveting set of conversations about the role of food and regenerative agriculture in solving the climate crisis. They called the two-day event the Climate Underground. Along with the conversations, some of Nashville's hottest chefs joined Alice in creating a sustainable organic school lunch to highlight the power of local school-supported agriculture in nurturing the health of children and the land. This event happened long before the moment we all find ourselves in right now, as the coronavirus pandemic sweeps across the planet. But it holds seeds and hope for a different approach to our future and the fate of the planet we all share. In honor of Earth Day, the Kitchen Sisters present The Climate Underground. As a child, from the first year of my life all the way through until I was in college, I spent every summer here on this uh, farm and every Christmas and every spring vacation. And my father taught me how to recognize the best and most fertile soil. Put my hands in it and it was black and moist. I always believed agriculture and the food system are absolutely key to solving and mitigating the climate crisis. We have converted this farm to a whole variety of regenerative practices, a combination of plants and livestock with highly diverse uh, cover crops and maximum use of no-till, avoiding synthetic insecticide. We harvested our first crop according to these new practices in 2016, only three years ago. So I'm very excited that we have not only uh, regenerative farmers, but also scientists and entrepreneurs and chefs. We've got some really great chefs here. We're at Al Gore's farm in Carthage, Tennessee. We are cooking two school lunches for 350 people who are attending Climate Underground, a conference about connecting food and farming to climate. I'm Alice Waters, the owner of Chez Panisse Restaurant in Berkeley, California, and the founder of the Edible Schoolyard Project, which has grown from one school in Berkeley to a network of 7,000 schools around the world. We're here today to acknowledge the land, not just here in this area, but all over Turtle Island and the Americas. My name is Mary Crow. I am a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee. You are here today because you have a concern. You have a major concern about the soil, about the air, 
about the watcher. I'm really happy to introduce my partner in putting together this event, Alice Waters, who is providing all of the delicious and nutritious food. In addition to her groundbreaking work as a chef and a pioneer in the movement for organic and local food, Alice is also a committed advocate for the role that food and agriculture can play in protecting our environment. How did you get started with the Edible School Project? It really began when I had a child. I was a Montessori teacher. The ideas of Montessori have informed all of my work. She believed in the education of the senses. Mm -hmm. She believed in touching and tasting Mm -hmm. and smelling. When I started the Edible Schoolyard Project, I said food is a way to really open up the senses Mm -hmm. because it touches every one of them. If we put in a garden and we put in a kitchen classroom, we could wake up Mm. the young people who have been sensorily deprived, Mm -hmm. many of them because of hunger and because of poverty, Mm. because of an indoctrination of fast food culture. (laughs) Throughout most of human history, the daily ritual and practice of collecting, gathering, preparing, eating food together has been a key part of the connection between individuals and nature. And in order to reestablish that connection for children, you look for other opportunities and you found one in the school system. I mean, it's the place where we can reach children when they're young and open. The idea of this is to have them fall in love with nature. Food is more than just food. Food is really about culture. We have been indoctrinated by a fast food culture. When we eat that, we digest the values that come with it. The ideas of uniformity, The idea is that we should have whatever we want, whenever we want it. Doesn't matter where it comes from. Mm. Cooking is drudgery. Farming is drudgery. We think advertising confers value. Mm. The centerpiece of this project is a civilized, sustainable school lunch. And before you focused on the school system and the Edible Schoolyard Project, your career as a chef was really transformative. What got you uh, involved with that? It was all about taste for me, taste and beauty. I had gone to France when I was 19, and it was a slow food nation in (laughs) France then. Kids came home for two hours to eat with their parents, and every day people would go to the markets in their neighborhoods beautiful outdoor markets and you bought only what was in season. We would go and eat in these little family restaurants that are happening again. People see that making a restaurant can be a way of life, that they can have a real connection with the people that come in. And I love that about the restaurants I visited here in Nashville. And I feel such a kinship with that group of people already because we have the same values. That's what's important about this and what we need to communicate to the next generation. It's something that we've been doing since the beginning of civilization. Gathering together, eating only what's in season, only what's locally available. Even though fast food culture would say it's impossible Mm -hmm. to feed kids in schools. There are too many. They don't like it. You can't find the food. But guess what? We can. Chapter 1. A Fable for Tomorrow. There was once a town in the heart of America where all life seemed to live in harmony with its surroundings. The town lay in the midst of a checkerboard of prosperous farms, with fields of grain and hillsides of orchards, where in the spring, white clouds of bloom drifted above the green fields. In autumn, 
Oak and maple and birch set up a blaze of color that flamed and flickered across a backdrop of pines. Then foxes barked in the hills and deer silently crossed the fields, half hidden in the mists of the fall mornings. Even in winter, the roadsides were places of beauty, where countless birds came to feed on the berries and on the seed heads of the dried weeds rising above the snow. The countryside was in fact famous for the abundance and variety of its bird life. And when the flood of migrants was pouring through in spring and fall, people traveled from great distances. It was on this farm that my mother insisted that my sister and I uh, listen to her read aloud from uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. My dad's uh, generation was really focused on soil conservation. Franklin Roosevelt made that a key part of the New Deal. My parents' generation understood that in their bones. They lived through it. I shall never forget the fields of wheat, so blasted by heat that they cannot be harvested. I shall never forget field after field of corn, stunted, earless, stripped of leaves, for what the sun left, the grasshoppers took. I saw brown pasture that would not keep a cow on 50 acres. Yet I would not have you think for a single minute that there is permanent disaster in these drought regions. No cracked earth, no blistering sun, no burning wind, no grasshoppers are a permanent match for the indomitable American farmers and stockmen and their wives and children who have carried on in the last 200 years, we've taken this leap in destroying the grasslands of the world. All of the agricultural systems of the last 100 years have seen this massive decimation of soil and biological life in this microbiome that has disappeared under the pressure of the antibiotics put into our animals and crops. I'm Dr. Zach Bush. I am a medical doctor from Virginia, specialties in internal medicine and endocrinology and metabolism, later in hospice and palliative care. And my background is in the microbiome and its intersection with soil and human health. Uh, we're really talking about a new paradigm for the topic of climate change where we can start to focus less on the symptoms of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and start to look towards the solutions which are in the soil. About 28% of all the global warming pollution comes from land use, agriculture, and forestry. But here's good news. With the practice of no-till versus conventional till, after 10 years, you can see the buildup of soil organic carbon. We have 40 years worth of data that showcases that the way we farm has a huge impact on how much carbon we can sequester. When native ecosystems, forests, and native prairies are converted to intensive agricultural practices, within about 30 or so years, you can lose up to 50% of the carbon in topsoil. So what that says to me is, at the very least, we have a potential to restore that much. Restoring this carbon is obviously very important from a climate perspective, but it comes with multiple other co-benefits that are essential for human and other beings. Soils is part of the portfolio of strategies that we could deploy to address climate change, but soils aren't going to solve the problem alone. It's frustrating even as a scientist in the scientific community when you talk about carbon sequestration or climate change mitigation with agricultural practices, to have colleagues get angry at me and say, it's all about fossil fuels, and it is all about fossil fuels. We have to reduce emissions. There's just no, you know, we've got to fix our energy systems. We've got to change our lifestyles. And in addition, we need to develop ways in which we can remove CO2 out of the atmosphere. And soils are a great place to do that. Can it solve all the problems? Maybe not. But is it a good place to start with? Absolutely. The carbon sequestration in soil is a natural process. It's a low-hanging fruit. It's cost-effective. It has many benefits. Start with that. Don't ignore it. Yeah. To feed the world, we have to have healthy soil. I'm looking at the tables that we have set in long lines under a tent. All the food that we have for this lunch has been gathered from regenerative farms across the state of Tennessee. 
we have a placemat with the state of Tennessee pinpointing all of these farms. When people come to eat, I'm going to say, I'd like to feed you an idea. I'd like to feed you an idea. <laughs> We're serving you a school lunch. Woo! We're serving you a vegetarian school lunch. A real Tennessee meal. If you look on your placemat, you'll see all of the farms here in Tennessee where we purchase the food. All of it from people that are really activists here in Tennessee. I never knew you had so many. Bon appetit! To the Tennessee walls What an old friend I happen to see Dee Wagner, Alice's On the Road team The cornmeal, the flour, the vinegar This particular menu, both days are sourced within 70 miles of here And we really dug into what Tennessee could provide We are about to feed 350 people of fair amount of food that we got over from around here. A lot of our farmers pitched in. Everything is simple, trying to let the ingredients shine. I'm Davis Reese from Plus Nashville. I'm Tandy Wilson from City House of Nashville. I'm Sam Jett from Audrey and Redbird. In, in all honesty, the farmers did all the work, so all we're doing is just finishing her up and putting it on a plate and hoping people enjoy it. Yeah. We're trying not to screw up a really good product. <laughs> yeah, like that's like, I feel like that's my job most of the time, is just don't screw up what they've already put all their work into. Yeah. We only have to handle it for a little bit. They have to grow it on their farm. It takes them a lot longer to do the work than it does us. The cool part, too, is like okay. some of my farmers get really excited, and they're like, I'm growing this weird thing. Like, do you want it? We're like, of course we want it. You're excited about it. Like, right. Why wouldn't we be excited about it? They so. don't know on our end that that unique ingredient Gets us going. Gets us going. Yeah, That's yeah, what I'm yeah, having a little bit of an edge in the market to yeah. say, we have this delicious thing that nobody else has. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you've never heard of this, and that's because only one farmer has it, and we know them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I enjoy that. Yeah. Why school lunch? What's your thought on why all this effort to demo a school lunch? The idea is we've got to start early, because if you show them you know, Chick-fil-A, Burger King, and all these things, and say, well, this is what food is, they're going to come here, and they're going to look at lettuce and go, why would I want that? That's just what goes on top of a hamburger. I mean, we had kids out here the other day, and they were, oh, I want a, you know, I want a quarter pounder. They're like, I don't want this. And then I, we brought them the food, we put it in front of them, and the girl who was complaining started eating the salad, and she looked up at me, and she smiled, and then she asked me what a pawpaw was. She loved it. I think we start that later on in life. She's going to be looking to have food like that as opposed to stuff that you can buy quickly from a fast food restaurant. My name is Matthew Rayford. I am a chef and farmer, or chef farmer, at Gilliard Farms in Brunswick, Georgia. What made you decide to come here? I called Alice. It's me, Alice. It's Matthew. And she goes, I'm so glad you called me today. She said, I'm getting ready to go do this conference, and I need you to help me with these greens and beans. And then she goes, you know what? I'm trying to find some garbanzo beans. I said, for what? She said, well, I really want to make hummus. And I was like, why don't you use field peas? Field peas are coming out right now. And she was like, oh, my God. That's what we're talking about, field peas. That's right. I'm in your neck of the woods. And then she goes, wait a second. You need to be at this conference because you have a 100-year-old farm. You've been doing this kind of stuff. Your family's been doing it. And I want you to communicate and talk to people about what it's like to be in the South as a chef and a farmer, African-American, talking about regenerative agriculture, sustainability. Yeah, these are old ways. These are the things that's going on. I have believed for many years that farmers are the first environmentalists the group I'm about to bring up here on stage embodies the belief that farmers can lead the way toward caring for our environment, uh, being good stewards of the land and the water and the air, and they are at the forefront of the emerging changes. I farm about 675 acres, and I'm best known for running a flirt, the cattle and sheep together, and then I've added hogs and we're converting some land to civil pasture. We need the soil to build the quality of the food and you need to understand those feedbacks between roots and shoots that uh, we really spend a lot of time investing in that. I have a small organic farm in southwestern Virginia. It's an old tobacco farm. When we bought it, it had 1.9% organic matters. It's a brick when it's dry and it's mud when it's wet. 
First year we had an organic inspector out, she literally could not find an earthworm on the farm, literally. So it was that's kind of fairly typical. And our job is not to produce tons and tons of stuff. It is not to try to kill weeds with pesticides. Our job as farmers is to produce healthy people. And we need to begin looking at the soil as the foundation for that building block in health. The important question to me is, how do we get back to those practices that we know can restore carbon in soil? Like restoring native vegetation whenever possible, conservation tillage practices, or practices that, that are able to introduce more carbon to soil, including recycling. All of these variables help us to accomplish that goal. And the added benefit of addressing this degradation issue is then we also have these co-benefits that are essential for human and other beings living on land. One of the most profound things that I've found in recent years was the definition of nature is animals, plants, minerals, and anything non-human on Earth. What did we do when we defined nature as everything outside of human? How did we exclude ourselves from nature in its definition? What a mistake we made. My mission now, I think, is to put humanity back into the definition of nature, or perhaps put nature back into the definition of human. As a hospice director, seeing 80 patients a week, what I was seeing in the last few minutes and sometimes days and months of people's lives was a complete transformation event. People were acting differently than they ever had people who were gruff and you know non-nurturing to their children suddenly became these like bundles of just nurture and love as soon as you get that terminal diagnosis there's an opportunity there's an opportunity for you to drop the fluff reorganize your perceived priorities and ask yourself what really matters so the Paris Agreement a lot of hope here set a goal to get to net zero by mid-century. And some countries are doing well. Uh, our president announced that he wants to pull out of the Paris Agreement, but uh, under the law, the first day the U.S. could withdraw is the day after the next presidential election. So this agreement was carefully drafted, so the American people still have that decision. Meanwhile, we're seeing the majority of our people living in states that are accelerating faster than required by the Paris Agreement. And I don't know whether you've noticed or not, but the marchers and demonstrators are getting younger. And we're seeing with Greta Thunberg, the voice of a generation that is so pure and so powerful. And now there are a whole variety of new people power options that are opening up. So this is our home. We've got to save it. I'll just close by referencing one of my favorite poets, Wallace Stevens. He wrote these lines. After the final no, there comes a yes. And on that yes, the future world depends. Every great morally based revolution in human history has met with an endless series of no's until at long last the central choice is revealed as a choice between what's right and what's wrong. That is the moment the climate movement is at now. And the farmer-led regenerative agriculture movement is part and parcel of this morally-based revolution. If you ever doubt that we as human beings have the ability to solve this, just remember that political will is itself a renewable resource. Thank you very much. The Climate Underground was produced by the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, with Matt Hoish, in collaboration with Nathan Dalton and Brandy Howell, and mixed by Jim McKee. Thanks to the teams of Al Gore and Alice Waters, who together brought this summit to life, Thanks also to the many scientists, farmers, and visionary thinkers who put their heads together to share their collective wisdom. Thanks also to that remarkable scrum of Nashville chefs and to Chef Farmer, 
Matthew Rayford from Georgia. I've always been on the top of a stove. I am the youngest male in my extended family. What do you do with a little boy? You sit him in there in the kitchen with his grandma and cleaning field peas and snapping snap beans and, oh, your granddaddy brought in some fish. Let's scale these fish up. I'm on family land. I'm the sixth generation to be on it farming. I was raised by a father that was a baker by trade from the 50s and 60s. During his lifetime, he never saw anyone that was African-American make it to become an executive chef. So he didn't want me to cook at all. He was like, there's a lot of things you can do. Cooking ain't one of them. He said, you can go to school, do anything you want now. I just want to cook. I want to go to culinary school. My dad was like, no, you can't do it. I went in the military. When I got out, I was going to Howard University, and I was cooking all the time. People were like, where did you? I was like, I just know how to cook. I remember my Nana finally showed me how to make her sweet potato pie. There's a small video clip on my phone, like in the kitchen, and her going, babe, mm-mm, you need to add a little bit more. That don't taste right. Mm, hey, well, mm-mm. Uh-uh, whip it some more, baby. Baby, there's no rush. Just go ahead and just whip it some more. You know, and I'm standing there like, I have whipped it. And she's like, mm-mm, it don't feel right. It don't feel right. It don't feel right in my mouth. Mm-mm-mm, don't open up the oven yet. I said, you told me to baste it every five minutes. She said, mm-mm, see, that's an approximation. You trying to, like, look at you, look at you, look at you. Got your phone out. You know, I had the little timer on five minutes. Let me run over over here in base, right? She says, no, baby, that's an approximation. Like, I had to give you something to go on. Thanks also to Claire Sullivan and Angela McKee Brown from the Edible Schoolyard Foundation, and to Callie Corey, John T. Edge, Nick Conger, and Jason Bade. Here's a few more thank yous. The panelists you heard in this story, Jeff Moyer, Executive Director, Rodale Institute, Asmrit Asfa Berhe, Professor of Soil Biogeochemistry, University of California, Merced. Wendy Silver, Professor of Ecosystem Ecology and Biogeochemistry. Ratan Lal, Soil Scientist, Ohio State University and recipient of the Japan Prize for the Sustainable Soil Management for Global Food Security and Mitigation of Climate Change. Greg Brand, Farmer, Grazing and Land Management Consultant. Anthony Falcavento, author and organic farmer, David Rourke, Rourke Farms Limited. Then to get into farming, we were sitting around and my Nana was like, baby, what are we going to do with all this land? And I said, Nana, we should go back to farming it. And she said, did you say we, baby? And I said, yes, ma'am. Her, my mom, and my aunt, them sisters, got together. They reached underneath the table and gift-deeded my sister and I 28 acres and was like, y'all need to get back to farming. And at the time, I was executive chef at the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., and I'm like, I can't just leave my job. In 2011, I I moved back to the farm full-time. I had the conversation with my nana about going back to school and learning about organic farming. She heard me use the word organic, and what she actually thought was chemistry. My nana goes, baby, you sit down with me for a little while. I want to learn. I want to know what you learned in school. So I'm telling her what I learned. She was like, no, 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 tell me about the organic stuff. I said, that is the organic stuff. She was like, um, no, baby, you talking about farming. Baby, you mean to tell me your ass went all the way to California to learn what you already know how to do? So I'm telling her about compost. And she goes, oh, you talking about the honey wagon? Like, we know how to do the honey wagon, baby. We've been making manure tea since I don't know. I mean, your, your great-granddaddy used to make manure tea. And I was like, oh, my God. I could have actually just given my nana the money and just set at her feet. And I think we need to take the time to sit at the feet of our elders and actually listen, regardless of whether they're using a big scientific word or something as simple as the old ways. I mean, what I see here at Al Gore's Ranch, you know, the reclamation of land and uh, how to uh, do carbon sequestering and making sure that you rotate various animals through the pasture, spreading that manure out and letting that grass grow, putting things in paddocks. That's the old ways. Thanks to the many scientists, farmers, chefs, and visionary thinkers who opened our eyes to the health of soil and its immense potential for changing the fate of the planet we all share. The Kitchen Sisters present as part of PRX's Radiotopia, a network of some of the most distinct, independent, and beautifully crafted podcasts. 
Please take care of yourself, your family, and your community, and the people who grow and cook our food. Deepest thanks to those of you who are out working, taking risks to help take care of the needs of all of us. Thanks for listening. This is WJFF. This is the time that you'd usually be listening to Making Waves. Tonight, we've got a couple specials in place. We just got done with that Climate Underground special. And coming up next, stay tuned. We've got the latest edition of Wings from the Women's International News Gathering Service. So I think I did Folk Plus all these years and ran clubs and wrote professionally about folk because of the intimate nature of the genre. As Maris Hearn used to say, it moves and sustains me. And as Lo Lily says here in the background, when darkness comes, it creates hope. I hope you'll join me Saturdays at noon. Today on Wings, Diana Wanyonyi interviews Agnes Lena, an indigenous climate activist from the herding region of Kenya who acts both locally and globally. There's nothing that comes to you in a silver platter here. There's a river of birds in migration, a nation of women with wings. Welcome to Wings, a series of news and current affairs programs by and about women around the world, produced and distributed by the Women's International News Gathering Service. My name is Agnes Lena. I'm originally from Samburu County, from a place called Baragoy. And then I got married. Uh, now my home is in Kajiado because uh, that's where my husband comes from. And then I started an organization called Ilaramatak Community Concerns. That means caregivers or caretakers, pastoralists, people who actually depend on livestock for their livelihoods, people who take care of cows and goats. But, you know, it also denotes caregiving for even for human beings and even for nature so we are caregivers that's what i always say Mm -hmm. that our organization is like an organization of that takes care that gives care to not just our livestock but also to human beings and to our environment Mm -hmm. to nature so um my passion on environmental issues and climate change it's always been that uh, climate change is affecting all of us but it affects women in a more unique and special way. Women spend, according to even statistics, women spend two, two million hours fetching water. And pastoralist women are the ones who are most affected by that issue about water. When I was younger, when I was in primary school, I spent 20 minutes because there was a small stream next to my mother's house. Mm-hmm. 20 minutes to, to and fro to go and fetch water. And then sometimes maybe half an hour because, you know, kids go and play. And then um, with time, yeah, just walking. Then with time, that small stream, because of climate change issues and all that, it the, the, the water went deeper and deeper. So during the season when the water goes deeper, we, t- we travel for, we, we walk for one hour, another one hour, which means two hours to and fro, to fetch water in another river. Uh, it's called actually River Baragoy. Then with time also again, because of climate change, that goes even deeper and the water goes, you know, you just used to scoop the sand and you get the water. But now you have to scoop even deeper and deeper and sometimes you just get nothing. So we go to another place, which is now, Two hours one way and two hours another way, which is four hours both ways. So, and then do you know how much water you're going to fetch? You're only going to fetch 20 liters of water. So that's four hours, 20 liters of water. It's not enough because you'll use that water for cooking food, washing utensils, washing uniform because I was in primary school, washing myself, you know, body for all of us because we were three of us. And, and of course, for home use, it's not enough. So that wastes a lot of, as a child, a, a, a student in the primary school, it meant the next day I'm not going to school. Why? Because I'm so tired, having worked for four hours. It means 
will not have enough water to wash my uniform. I will be beaten if this, the uniform is dirty. So I have to remain behind and do that. Thirdly, I will not go because I have not done my homework. So that means missing class. So how many girls miss class because of that? And the situation has not changed much. It's still the same. Most pastoralists fetch their water from streams, downstreams, everywhere you go. We don't have running water. Um, my mother passed away, may the Lord rest her soul in peace, three years ago. And even by the time she passed on, she did not have running tap water. And the first thing I had told my mother, when I grow up, I will buy for you a tank. And I did it. So that my mother doesn't have to struggle with water in her old age. So it means you'll get, just get surface run of water. So now what's happening is that we're, we're, we're struggling to find our parents, the plastic tanks, the big, big plastic tanks to get surface run of water. You can also get that only if you have an iron sheet roof. Because if you do not have that, you cannot also collect the water. So that, that's just an example of how women are affected by climate change. Women have no time to do anything else. They have no productive hours to do anything else like business, fend for their children, even take care of themselves. Because they have to spend so much money, so, so, much, so many hours going to fetch water. And then after that, you still haven't fetched firewood. You still haven't cooked the food. You still haven't washed the utensils. You still haven't washed the uniforms for your children and for the clothes for your family. So all that, if you look at it, it really takes a toll on women, especially women in Africa. I do not know about women from other parts of the world, and especially pastoralist women. So those are the issues that made me think I need to work around issues of climate change for women, for pastoralist women, so that I see what we can do in order to lessen the hours of working for water, lessen the hours of working for firewood, and just have some hours for the woman to fend for herself and to have an alternative livelihood. So then, um, <clears throat> my husband and I came up with an idea of an, an, an alternative livelihood, and we have um, a resource center. How that came about is that uh, we got friends from Houston, uh, from Houston Northwest Church, World Hope Ministries. And uh, they just asked Agnes, what would you like us to do for you and for the, for the women and girls in your community? Mm -hmm. And I said, buy for us machines, sewing machines. So just like that, mm -hmm. they bought for us 10 of them. So, and I said, I cannot take them to my house. The community gave us one acre of land. Okay, the land is here. What do we do? We must build a place where we can put these sewing machines. My husband and I <clears throat> sold 10 cows. It's not easy for a, a Maasai man, a pastoralist man, to sell cows. But he did to support the cause. He sold 30 cows. And we made the resource center. We actually made it a very big deal. And we called the media and we called friends from the county and outside mm -hmm. to come and witness when we launched the project. So in this resource center, women come and sew uniforms. They make mats. It's very interesting. And I, I just love to see a pastoralist woman making mats. It's not easy. Usually they would just be sitting to do beads, but this is mats. Then they make bags. Mm -hmm. In fact, recently when we had, um, when we launched our um, policy on FGM, we were given a tender to do 50 of those bags. So what else would you call that? You would call it alternative livelihood. And what else would you call it? You would call it activities that are non-climate dependent. So at least when they are not looking after that one goat or that one cow for the whole day, mm -hmm. they'll have something else that they will be doing. And they have a place 
but they will do it. Yes. Wow. Uh, that's very inspiring. Wow. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. Now, uh, what is the role of these women in matters of uh, combating climate change? Well, climate change jargon is so scientific. We don't use all those scientific jargons. We have a calendar to say what it is that you can do. We have our own seasons and we know them by name. And that's the only way to explain what climate change means. But please, just elaborate on that calendar. Yes. Yeah, so it works. <clears throat> in this calendar, we know that from this month, to uh, the, the, the months are also in, in Maasai name, in Maasai words. From this month to this month, we know we have long rains. And then from uh, November again and December, we know we have short rains. So we know the time the boys will be circumcised because then we know that's the time they will be able to rest. Then they will be trained about their culture. Mm -hmm. Usually it takes a whole year, but things are changing because of school. So now all that has reduced. Mm -hmm. And then looking also at that calendar again, we choose to change because now things are no longer the way they used to be. So that's how we explain what climate change means. And then we have films. We bring <clears throat> women, the whole community even sometimes, to the hall and show them a film. Broadcasting As in which language? In Swahili, but we translate. In fact, we say prior what it's all about. And most people these days know Swahili. There are few who don't know. And then I can just give an example. We show a film of Mother Wang, Marta Wangare. Wangai, Wangare Madai, sorry. Madai. <laughs> uh, and her tree planting exercise and initiative. Because when you explain about tree planting, they don't understand. These are pastoralist people. So planting things is not part of us. In fact, plucking them is one. <laughs> because we don't understand we use rangeland for pastoralism and for livestock. So planting things is not in our culture, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But now we have to do it. So we show this film, for instance, and then we tell them, so what did you see? Oh, we saw a woman planting trees and all that. And then see the, 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 the harshness she went through and the beating and all that. And it makes them sad, what it makes them feel and what it makes them do want to do and at the end of the day they said it makes us want to plant trees so we ha we go and bring the trees and we deliberately bring trees that they know for instance the fig tree is called Olngaboli. we bring that kind of tree and tell them this is the tree to plant mm -hmm. then we plant we bring acacia trees because they are familiar to that and they know it we bring fruit trees because at least these ones will be eaten. This is part of the food. And that's now what pastoralist women are doing. And we also have a community farm where we, we plant food. That is alternative livelihoods for us. Okay. And it's an adaptation measure. And even the things I was telling you about the mats and the, and the, the beadwork and all that, those are all nothing but adaptation and resilience projects for our women. On Wings, you're hearing Agnes Lena, an indigenous climate activist from the hurting region of Kenya, talking with Diana Wanyonyi. Uh, you spoke about something interesting about how you can detect the effect of climate through uh, intestines of a goat. Can you just take me through this indigenous prediction method? Um, especially in Samburu County where I come from. We grew up knowing that the weatherman is the, the astrologer. He is the one who looks at the stars and tells us when it rains. And the issue about stars is a shared knowledge among almost all pastoralist communities. Last December, my father-in-law told my husband, it's going to rain. We were almost despairing. And my husband asked, why? He said, I've, I've seen the star. This evening when you come out, come I show you the star. Indeed, the star was being talked about in the entire Kajiado County. It was there? Yes. And indeed, it rained. 
How unique is that star from other stars? Well, it's the size of it and the name. They is even it, have a name for it. Is it bigger? Is it it's more? bigger. It's bigger and it's brighter. What's the name? Well, I, I don't know the name. Okay. I, I have to ask, but they, they, it has a name. Does it <clears> appear <throat> yearly? No, no, no. It just comes when, when you're anticipating rain, you see it. Then the elders know. So we are busy in towns and <clears throat> doing our own things. But those things are there. The, the stars are there. So what we want to do and is... And it rained? Absolutely. It didn't even go one day. <coughs> it didn't even pass one day. It just rained. As soon as he said it's rain, it's rain. And it rained. Even when I was growing up, the astrologer, his name is Lesepen, he would come and tell us about the two stars. One of them is the father and then the sun. Mm -hmm. And if the father is on top, he will not urinate to the sun. Definitely, you, you cannot imagine your father urinating on you. True. <laughs> so definitely that means dryness. It's no rain. But if the smaller star is on top and the, the, the bigger star is, is below, definitely. The it child, yes, that's the child and the father. <laughs> it will rain. And that's traditional knowledge. Yeah. Because these older people are not learned by then. No. And they could still predict such. To date. Not just then. To date. We still listen to them. More than the weatherman. We complement the tradition and the science. So take the traditional man to the meteorological department and bring the weatherman also and let them talk about their different sciences and then just compare notes. Yeah, the two have to be complemented and they have to be used. Yeah. And Kenya is a rich country, rich with, with cultures, rich with traditions, and we should embrace each other. Mm -hmm. That's what I can say. Can you also tell us about goat intestines? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> the goat intestines also predict so many things, not just rain, but also wars, um, sickness, um, well-being, rivers, flooding, all those so you, you, you slaughter a goat and then <clears throat> the intestines, you know the veins, the veins just show. The veins are actually like tributaries of the river. The darker they are, the more they predict water, rivers flowing. Then the thinner they are and a bit frail and, and, and um, without the, the, you know, the rich color, then it's frail. It's not going to rain. And you know how to read this? I know how to do it myself. <laughs> I know how to read it myself. I've been taught. I, I, I saw it from since I was a child. So now I know. Even if <clears throat> sometimes when we slaughter a goat with my husband at home, we just do it for the sake of doing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we let other people see what we are doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Now, pastoralists are the people who move from <laughs> one place to another. Yes. Now, for this initiative for women in Kajado, in Samburu, how do you make sure that they don't move from where they are to a different place, given that there's communal land and they've also planted these fruit trees and other trees? How do you help them not to move from one place to another? In Kajado these days, people have settled more and more. They still practice nomadic pastoralism, but it's the men who move. Women will stay with the children and older people. And a few cows will also be left behind. Right now, as I talk to you, my own cows are not at home. Because of nomadism, because recently there was no rain until it rained recently, we had moved. But we left 10 of them behind for milk. So that's how it is. Even where we have our resource center, it's more permanent now. People have settled. And in Kajado, land has been subdivided, so people have their own homes now. So there's no movement as such. Mm -hmm. So it's easy now to tell people plant trees and they can plant it. Mm -hmm. Then the problem is if you don't fence off your home, you know, we live with our animals. We live with our goats. We live with our cows. So definitely they will interfere. And then also definitely, you know, pastoralist um, areas, rain is not a common thing. So still it's a problem if you have no water. Those trees may not even grow. But during a rainy season like now, it's possible to plant trees and they'll reach a certain level. Mm -hmm. And in the small farm that I told you about, women had planted trees and they've grown. Mm -hmm. 
We planted some also in the school, but they all died because there was no one to water them. And then plus the fence of our little school there is, is, is not good. And so the goats just finished all our trees. Speaking about water, now for these women who are now in Samburu and Kajado, how have you helped them now to get water apart from resource center? How much are we talking about? How much did you spend in the initiative? And is the Kenyan government doing much to help women? No, I have never reached out to anyone, to be honest with you. Mm. I have done my own things my own way mm. with my staff and with my community. We did our little thing just on our own. Mm. I don't even think I've heard about that initiative by the vice president. Mm. Unfortunately, in this country, some things are done if, if you are not aware. Mm. And even if you are aware, you have to know someone to be able to get that help. Mm. And then this government cannot help everybody. Some of us just have to take our own initiatives and do the bit that we can do and then wait for money to find us somewhere. Let money find you going. That's my motto. Mm -hmm. Let me do the little that I can do and let money follow. Mm -hmm. We cannot keep waiting. Okay. Yeah. For these women, how are they getting water now? Uh, these days we have a lot of initiatives. We have goodwill from some people. Like in Baragoy, we have a priest. We were in school with him. And now he's come back to give back to the community. And some vulnerable women have benefited from 10,000 liter tanks. That's the only way to do it. And then building just a small house where you can be able to put gutters and get rain water from the roof, roof catchment. And then for in Kajiado, what I've seen most people do is that most people have a shallow well. Is it called a shallow well? Um, a dam, sort of. And just a small dam where they can have their water. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a dam, your neighbor could have a dam. And that's now purely surface run of water. I also have surface run of water. Believe it or not, I don't have tap water in my house. I don't. I also have rain catchment and dam water, just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. So w when, when it's totally dry, they can come to me if I have. And if it's, we've, we've never really had a time when we completely had to go and buy water, no. Mm. Somehow we have it in. And then in our resource center also, we, we wrote a proposal to another organization called Good Hands, and they did a, a borehole for us. And then the late Ngaiseri, we, we did a, a, a proposal, and we have a, a borehole. It's 30, it, it is three cubic meters. Mm -hmm. It is not a lot. Mm -hmm. It's just enough for the irrigation of the little garden that we have. But also, w during drought, we, we we open it to the community, okay. yeah. Okay. To s not all of them, because otherwise it just gets dried. Mm. But uh, I want to say uh, we have plans. Yeah. We have plans. We are with my friends from Houston Church. They said they will help us with water. We're still discussing that, and by March next year we shall have a solution for that. Agnes Lena is the executive director and founder of Ilaramata Community Concerns and a pastoralist from Baragoy, Samburu County in northern Kenya. She works internationally with other indigenous communities and was a delegate to several United Nations conferences on climate change. There she worked with Mary Robinson, a former president of Ireland and former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, whose Climate Justice Foundation supported women's leadership and getting gender into UN climate documents. The foundation closed its doors in 2019. Diana Wanyonyi interviewed Agnes Lena for Wings. Uh, you also spoke about COP. It was COP19. COP19. What took you there and what are you presenting? Um, first of all, I must tell you that uh, I belong to a network in Africa called Indigenous People of Africa Coordinating Committee. It's called IPAC. And in IPAC, I was uh, elected as the gender coordinator. So I went there as IPAC gender coordinator to follow issues on gender. But when I went there, you just can't go real in the, and then say, Poop, where is the gender and all that? No, you have to learn from the beginning to the end, from COP1 to 19, what happened. And then for you to be able now to know where are the issues of gender, where have they reached? This is when I knew about Mary Robinson. She was the human rights uh, representative at the UNHCR. And it's not easy. It was crazy. I just felt like, oh my God, I need to go back home. 
by the end of the day my head is throbbing because it was running from one corner to the mm. other and another and another and learning the, what helped me is the echo magazines that we are talking about today you're given every morning you ne i never used to ignore because it really brought me to speed mm. and i also had an indigenous brother who was there his name is Kimaren. He's really grown in this world until he's now, you know, he's, he's I think, the African representative in GEF that we were talking about, Green Environmental Facility. He's, 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 he's really grown. Mm -hmm. And he helped me to come to speed. Mm -hmm. And he too was learning. I learned about it. And after that, I continued coming to all the cops except this year. Mm -hmm. This year, Mary Robinson, the one who used to take me, her foundation, uh, closed down. And now she works with the elders. It's, it's an, another movement, mm -hmm. the elders, that was started by um, Nelson Mandela. And then IPAC, my organization, also did not have money to take mm -hmm. everybody. So we just took a few people mm -hmm. and, and I gave them up my position. For indigenous, what were some of the aspects that you are fighting for to be included in the COP? Well, <clears throat> we were going as a movement mm -hmm. of indigenous people not as Kenyans. Okay. Indigenous are traditional people, people who value and who follow their tradition, their cultures. And you know very well that pastoralist communities, not just the Masai, Samburu, Turkana, are known for sticking by their cultures. And even Article 100, Article 55 in Kenya, in the Constitution, we are recognized as such. People who want to be recognized as people who stick to their culture. We are recognized as marginalized. We are recognized as pastoralists. We are recognized as minorities. Five times we've been recognized in that uh, constitution. So even the Kenyans who go from here, a group of us, we go as indigenous communities. And we are the ones who fought for indigenous knowledge to be included in the text in COP21 in the Paris Agreement, Article Number Seven, and now it's there. Wow. It's because of our effort, and and we are happy with that. Because even if not just Kenyans, there are so many other communities, indigenous communities, like in South America, they are very strong. The movement there is much much stronger than Africa, because in Africa there is this argument that everybody is indigenous, which is fine if you feel that you are indigenous, come and join the movement. It's there. It's open for all, and then. Um, for, for South America, it's, the, the situation is even worse than Kenya and, and other places in Africa. So for them, they even have to put up a bigger fight than we do. I don't think we have to, to fight so much to be indigenous in Kenya. And what was the aim now of taking that uh, initiative there? Apart from indigenous support to be recognized, what other aim for in terms of gender? Well, you know very well that gender is a big issue worldwide, but we feel that gender equality or gender equity among uh, pastoralist communities, women are, are already marginalized worldwide, so, so to speak. True. But among pastoralist communities, it's triple or double marginalization because of, again, our culture. So we fight every now and then. You, 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 there's nothing that comes to you in a silver platter here. You just have to voice yourself you say you have to talk you have to shout for you to be included mm -hmm. like we did in in paris through mary robinson mm -hmm. yeah and, and and eventually we got that text and that text has everything including human rights and it also has uh, inclusion of women which is gender mm -hmm. and then it has uh, inclusion of minorities and vulnerable communities and indigenous knowledge all of them yeah just read it it's a very rich uh, chapter and the Paris Agreement is a very simple document. You can read it in a day and, and, and put everything in your mind. That was Agnes Lena, an indigenous climate activist from the herding region of Kenya, interviewed for WINGS by Diana Wanyonyi. To hear WINGS programs again, email wings at wings.org and do check our news feed at facebook.com slash wingsradio. Thank you to all WINGS supporters, including your local community radio stations, IAWRT USA, Suzette Cullen, and Genevieve Vaughn, whose work can be found at gifteconomy.com, that's gift-economy.com. The WINGS sound logo is from Libana's album, A Circle is Cast. I'm Frida Worden. This is the Women's International News Gathering Service.
Next time on the New York Philharmonic this week, we'll hear works by Bloch, Ben Haim, and Shostakovich in performances from the orchestra's archives. I'm Alec Baldwin, hoping you'll join me each week for the New York Philharmonic this week. WJFF, Jeffersonville, New York, W 